Welcome to devmode.fm, a podcast dedicated to the tools, techniques, and technologies used in modern web development. I'm Andrew Welch from NY Studio 107. I'm Jennifer Blumberg from Next Solutions in New York. I'm Matt Stein from Working Concept in Austin. And I'm Patrick Harrington from Mile Geeky in Boston. Today, we have on Harry Robert, also known as CSS Wizardry. How are you doing, Harry? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good. So we wanted to have you on because we wanted to talk to you about web performance. So if you were out mm-hmm. in the town of Bunyal in Valencia, Spain, on the last Wednesday of August, and the La Tamatina Festival is in full swing, and you're crouched behind a wagon cart with tomatoes in hand, ready to strike, and a fellow tomato battler turns to you and says, hey, why should I care about web performance anyway? Like, what would you say? Um, well, I'd throw tomatoes at him while he was distracted, so oh. I'd just get those in. Yeah. Hmm. Um... My goodness, I mean, well, <laughs> well, that's the weirdest question of 2020 so far. Well, you got you to go um, quick. You got to go quick or you're going to get pelted in the face yeah. with a tomato. Yeah. Like, so you know exactly what time you should be here for the smarter fight because if the site was too slow, you would never have found out. You'd have been late. You'd have missed it and maybe something like that. Ah, yeah, that's a good that's point. Good. Yeah. It's one of those things where <laughs> I see it all the time and I'm sure you see it all the time, Harry, because I know that you were kind of transitioning. So originally you were kind of doing a lot of stuff with CSS, right? Hence the CSS wizardry kind of moniker, right? And you were a fun fact, like you did uh, this thing called IT CSS that was the basis Mm -hmm. for a lot of your work for a long time. And then it also is kind of the basis for Tailwind in terms of how they organize it. It's the the framework that I use for CSS these days is Tailwind, but you're kind of transitioning to to do more web performance stuff. So I, I did this for you. I did some research. Okay. Webperf, <laughs> right. webperfwizardry.com is available. So fun fact, the wizardry thing is probably one of the biggest professional regrets I have. <laughs> I bought that domain when I was 17 years old. And the reason for that is I just finished reading CSS Mastery and was like, ah, oh, because I'm super original. I want something like that. But obviously, I can't have CSS Mastery. And there was a sale on .com domain names. So 17-year-old me went and got my mum's credit card, bought a domain for a couple of pounds. And then, uh, yeah, 12 years later, here we are. Absolutely mortifying. And then I made the mistake of naming my, naming my company after it. So I was like, well, I might as well keep the company the same name as the website because that's kind of caught on. So now what will happen is I'll go visit like a client's office and they'll say, oh, which company are you with? And I have to just look them in the eyes and say, CSS Wizardry. <laughs> And they just think I'm an idiot. So yeah, major well, regrets. But I, I feel like with you know Harry Potter and that kind of thing, you know, it's kind of <laughs> kind of mainstreamish. But you're you're locked into the CSS wizardry part of it, right? Though you know I, that's I, the problem. I don't have yeah. the I don't have the budget or even the like a rebrand. I'm not. I'm like the brand's not well known enough to rebrand it. Also, right. it's. I don't have the budget to do that anyway, because I don't even know how, how that would work. So, uh, yeah, CSS Wizardry, the web performance person. Well, anyway, I did check this on four domains work. for you, in case you want. Web per- <laughs> webperfwizardry.com is available. Perfwizardry.com is available. Performancewizardry.com is available, although that might be confused with other kinds of performance. It might not be so great. And, Ooh, then, yeah. and then speedwizardry.com is also available. Also could Speed be confused. Wizard. Very confusing. Anyway, so but I I do think it's really important to talk about web performance. And there are a bunch of different ways that we can approach it, right? So we can talk about like, okay, what are the things that we can do to make a site more performant? Like what are the best things that we can do? But before we can even have that conversation, I think we need to convince people that it is important and we should do something about it. Like how how do you enter in that conversation with people when you're auditing their website and to convince them that spending a bunch of money to get the site performant is going to be in their best interest. Yeah, that's, this is honestly, it it still to this day baffles me. People will email me asking me to make their website faster. And I'll reply saying, yeah, we can do that. And then they'll say, but why? Mm. And I'm like, what? You emailed me. Surely (laughs) you know the answer, right? You emailed me. And towards the beginning of my sort of performance work, I would actually try and give them an answer. Um, what I would do is I'd look at what industry they're in, whatever vertical they're in. I'd try and find a similar company and sort of say, hey, well, you know, Staples increased revenues by 1% by doing X, Y, and Z. And that's like a crude proxy and that can sometimes get clients a little bit excited or at least interested. But nowadays what I do is I'll just say to them, look, how have, why have you emailed me? Like, you know, what do you think the benefit of this is going to be? Mm. And they'll have a vague notion of, oh, well, we know that, you know, in e-commerce, faster websites convert better or make more money. So they'll have a vague idea of what it is. And I'll just work with them to do the business anal- uh, business analysis. So we'll run either multivariate tests or we'll capture some, you know, how much revenue do you make 
on days when you run X percent slower? Can we artificially slow the site down for a few percent of users and see what that does to conversions? Mm -hmm. So towards the beginning of a project, we will actually gather those metrics. And then we could, at the end of it, decide, that, oh, actually, your business, your product, your whatever is fairly immune to web performance issues. Therefore, we don't need to go any further. Often, well, more often than not, that isn't the case. But it could be that, you know, oh, well, you know, people are buying Ferraris. They're not going to be put off by a few seconds delay, right? So it depends sure. on the product. Right. Right. I mean, if you if you are the only place to go for the thing, people are going right, to wait exactly. for it, right? Like, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Well, it's like, for example, the biggest example I can think of is I tend to fly with British Airways and that site is absolutely appalling, mm. but I've got to use it, right? I'm not going to, I need to buy a British Airways flight. I need to use their site. So I've kind of, kind of just put up with it. Yeah. Um, which is why I think a lot of my work comes from e-com purely because for most general kind of sites there are lots of competitors and speeds of competitive advantage so right. i work with a lot of retailers who you know customers do have alternatives and what they're trying to do is make sure those customers don't use those alternatives yeah and the bigger their volume the more bang for the buck that they get right in terms of right, if exactly. you if you increase conversions by one percent for a business like billy d joe bob's buffalo tanning hide business <laughs> where he sells just like one hide every week like okay it's not really going to make a difference but if yeah, you exactly. if you make a change for a website that's doing a million dollars a day you know one percent is not nothing um, yeah it's and, huge and it might be worth spending the money to do that and you mentioned conversions right and i think that's a mm -hmm. super important selling point because that's that's the one thing that clients are just like well Obviously, we care about yeah, conversions, right. right? We're in here to make money. The interesting thing is, I, you know, when I've been doing performance work, a lot of times I'm brought on via the marketing team. And the marketing team wants to increase conversions, but then the marketing team also wants to throw every tracking script under the sun on the website <laughs> to then track yeah. it. Have you, have you encountered that kind of tension? All the time. And um, I think, I don't know if it's just, I don't know if I'm just getting a bit more jaded or miserable or just older. Um, mm. I used to really struggle trying to reconcile that stuff like, oh, I'm sure I can think of a way to make it work and we can have this and this and this and still be fast. Nowadays, I just get the clients put in writing or acknowledge in writing that if you want to put this on the site, it is going to make it slower. And it's my professional opinion that you didn't ought to. So can you just confirm that you're going to go ahead despite my my advice? And they're like, yeah, okay, we'll do it. You know, I did that recently with them. It was a publishing company. And uh, they were like, oh, no, we need this thing to get the uh, some tracking data. And I was like, right, but it's tangible. It's making the site about half as slow. It's, it's really, really bad. Uh, so, yeah, but we need it to track the customers. It's like, well, look, can you please, in writing, just reply to this email saying that you're going to stick with it and that, you know, that is going to be this basically the end of the road. And they're like, yep, I'm afraid it is. So it's fine. Like, you know, they paid up and it's all good. But right. it's one of those things where I, I'm not going to, we're developers, right? We're not miracle workers. Um, well, well, people on hacking news probably fancy themselves a bit more like miracle workers. That's the tough um, thing, though. I've done that, too, where I've gone in and I've gotten site super performant. And then I come back in three months and, you know, they're just tracking script after tracking script has been added to it. And the performance is terrible. And it's this weird tension. Because right, they yeah, yeah. they want to track the customer, but if the site performance becomes terrible because of the tracking, then you're going to have fewer customers. <laughs> you know, so it's yeah, like, it's like Heisenberg observer effect thing. It's like exactly you're measuring the what you're measuring. You're sending them away. Like I've got a bit of rhetoric, which is a bit I don't know. It's not tongue in cheek, but it's a bit. I don't know. I don't know what the word is. But basically, what I will say to uh, my clients is, let's say, for example, this client uh, sells, I'm sat in my kitchen, right? So kitchen knives. They sell nice kitchen knives. And they want to add some tracking, right? And they're really keen. Like, no, we need to track where people go. We need to retarget them. We need to do this. And I'll just say to them, look, is your primary business, is it selling knives or is it gathering data? Mm, and they're right. like, let's sell knives. And I'll say, right, well, don't do any single thing that gets in the way of selling those knives. Right. Right. Slowing the site down, doing X, Y, and Z, having annoying interstitials to sign up to a newsletter. That's not going to sell a knife. That's going to annoy someone. Do all that secondary. Like, if you need retargeting stuff, lazy load it. If you need reviews, whatever, lazy load them. Just don't get anything, don't put anything in the way of whatever your primary business model is. And then usually they kind of, that just gets them around to thinking, that, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, we just want to sell our knives, really. Yeah. I mean, that's our goal, right? In the end. And yeah, I, exactly. I, I've run into kind of amusing situations where companies will, or marketers, they'll want to put like every single tracking thing that they can throw at it. They're going to put in there, you know, full story, hot jar. This is going to like throw everything on there. And mm -hmm. I've seen companies do that and, you know, huge overlap between a lot of these tools that they're putting on there. But then also they don't end up doing anything with the data. 
you know, or, or, <laughs> right. or they don't have a plan. Like, like they just, they know they want to track, but then, okay, we're tracking. What do we do now? Like, what do we, how yeah. is this useful? And because they don't know what they're actually measuring, uh, companies tend to defensively track everything. Like we'll mm. turn all the options on because then if we've got the data, we can work it out afterwards and they never do. Right. I've had loads of things. I've got, <laughs> if you'll indulge me, I've got three separate little anecdotes about this exact thing. I want all three. First one. Let's do it. First one. And by far my favorite was I was doing an audit for a client, geez, two years ago now. There's this third party, like analytics-y, capture-y kind of thing, like not not quite a tracking thing, but whatever, sort of. And uh, I just sort of said to them, hey, look, there's a bunch of stuff on the site I've got questions about, but this one in particular, uh, how much do we use this? You know, And one guy in marketing was like, oh, vital. Like, <laughs> talk about other things, but that one needs to stay. And I was like, oh, okay, right. Uh, it's just how much value do you get out of it? Is it, is it worth what the perceived, you know? And he was like, no, just that one. We, we definitely need that one. We love it. <laughs> and the reason I was asking him was because um, it was an async snippet that had been copied and pasted from some docs kind of thing into sure. the head. But it, well, actually, it hadn't been pasted from docs. It had been pasted out of uh, an email in Outlook. And the straight, like, HTML quotes had been changed for curly quotes. Oh, no. Like, type <laughs> <laughs> and it'd been pasted into the head. It's basically one great big syntax error. Uh-huh. This, and I did a git blame, a git log, sorry, of the entire file, the whole history of the file. This snippet had never, ever been correct, which means that this tool had never, ever, ever worked. But it's vital. So what but it's vital, Harry. This, well, like the Emperor's <laughs> New Clothes, right? The marketing guy was like, he'd got the budget for it. He'd got the budget approved. Yeah. And he'd convinced everyone, yeah, we're going to spend this much a year. And it had never worked, but he was too nervous to then say, <laughs> it's not working. So he just was like, no, don't touch it. Um, and I, I, didn't, I didn't call him out publicly at all, but I was like, hey, look, it's never worked. Let's get rid of this and right. we'll spin it so you can tell your manager now that you've managed to save them X amount a year. Right. We'll spin it in a positive. But there's that one. Yeah, that's that's really good the way you turned that around too. You made it so, you know, instead of him being humiliated and, and out of a job, you know, you managed yeah. to turn it into something where, hey, you know, look, on the down low, look at it, where you can just say we're, we're saving a bunch of money and, you know. Yeah, we've decommissioned this tool. We found it was ineffective, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Um, and then another time, uh, this is actually, a, this is a nicer story. Like no one got anything wrong with this one. Uh, but a client I worked with really recently had Optimizely on the site and it had quite a big overhead and Optimizely uh, is about $108,000 a year. Yep. And they just weren't using it enough. They were like, well, we've got, we got a license for it, but we honestly don't do that many tests and blah, blah, blah. And what we ended up doing is, well, if you don't run many tests and they were using the client side Optimizely tool, no, so if you don't run many tests, no. like, yeah, the worst one, right? Um, I was like, well, if you run tests that infrequently, can we not just use the feature inside of Speedcurve to do them on the server side mm-hmm. and do them that way? So what ended up happening is they bought Speedcurve at like $18,000 a year, and that uh, allowed them to immediately decommission Optimizely, saving them $108,000 a year um, <laughs> just you know, by just using different tools. One thing I find fascinating about Speedcurve, most people who end up on the Speedcurve site are developers, and developers don't normally tend to have budget, right? They have to go to their manager for that. And what will happen is a developer will be like, ah, $18,000 a year for Speedcurve, I can't. There's no way I'm going to ask my manager for that. Whereas what they don't realize is their manager is spending $150,000 a year on Analytics 360. Like speed curve is a bargain, but a lot of developers don't realize just how cheap it is. So that was a great story. Managed to decommission Optimizely in favor of doing it on the uh, server with speed curve. That's crazy. They, <laughs> they were using, they were paying them $180,000 a year for this thing. And they were doing, but yeah. What, okay. Yeah. 108,000. And they were doing it client side. So they, they were having the worst of both worlds in terms of like the performance of it and the payment of it. Yeah. Yeah. Basically it was um, just a very expensive way to achieve very little. That, um, that, because the thing is, well, they weren't, they weren't running many tests at all, maybe three a year, uh, but the optimizely script was still live on the site. Just uh, Harry, always you're, evaluating. To you're you're triggering me. Like literally like everything you're saying is just <laughs> triggering me because this is, this is another pet peeve of mine is AB tests. Like so many companies have been called in to work with, like we want to do an AB test. We want to do an AB test, but yeah, if yeah. you don't have a reasonable hypothesis, there's no point in doing an A-B test, right? There, you, you, don't, you don't just like change a headline and then A-B test it. You can't punt off your responsibility for writing good copy or doing good design or whatever and, and say, well, let's <coughs> let an A-B test sort it out. And then also pursuant to what you're talking about, if they're doing it client side, if you're impacting the performance of the page when you're doing the test, how do you know what you're measuring? You know? Right, exactly. You've got this huge, huge observer effect there. Yeah. And it's just, it is the worst. I mean, the, the one benefit of client Client-side A-B testing is that you can test without a deploy, right? So it means that you don't have to bother your engineering team. For right. companies that run a lot of tests, that is beneficial. But the problem if you're running a lot of tests is, well, 
how what is your cross section? If you're running that many tests, how do you know which infinite variation of, of those tests is the one that's working? Actually, okay, here's a real horror story. You think that was bad? Um, story three, uh, two point five. I worked with a big client. Everyone's heard of them. They were using they'd none of them enjoyed using the CMS. The CMS was just clunky. So they basically made page level content changes using Optimizely. Oh no! So basically, they <laughs> the CMS the masthead image or to update some copy, they would just go in the uh, optimizely UI and be like, all right, this button needs to say $39 instead of 59 or whatever, or this image needs to be this. So what happened is the page would download the original image, no. then the AB test would run, then it would go download the second one, while the whole time uh, opacity zero important on the body, the page is about four seconds slower than it needs to be. Oh um, my and my, my initial advice, because I didn't, I didn't realize the extent of what they were doing. So I was like, well, if you async load your optimizely you're going to get four seconds back. And they're like, yeah, but if we do that, customers are going to see two pages. And I was like, what do you mean? Ugh. Like, yeah. Um, if you look at our optimizely config, and I was like, ah, oh, shit, what have you done? My God, um, Harry, I'm, I'm in, you got me in full double face palm. My palm, my hands are sweaty. Like this is, this is driving me crazy. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. it's great that they have autonomy, right? That they're able, the marketing team is able to go in there and just make changes. But if the results of the tests are going to be largely ineffective because you don't know what you're measuring, whether it's the performance or the jank or, or whatever, like who cares that you can do it yourself? You know, I mean, I don't. Yeah, right. All for nothing in the end, right? Yeah. I mean, and your story about saving the money reminds me of a, a company I was called in to do some consulting work on. And um, they had this hosting that was with a company that I'm not going to name the company, but it sounds like Smackface. <laughs> and this was a, a pretty much a simple marketing brochure site. Guess how much they were paying per month for hosting this thing? This oh, I don't even want I don't want to guess. So it was more than $20. Was it like five figures? Five figures? Over 10000 over 10,000. Jen, you got a guess on this, what they were paying for the brochure site hosting? A brochure site? Yeah. So it wasn't $15 a month? Are you <laughs> saying it was more? I'm I'm not saying anything. I'm just, oh, you know, yeah. what, do you, what do you think it might have been? I'm going to guess three figures, upper three figures. Upper three. Okay. So under 1,000. <laughs> so Patrick, how about you? Well, I, I just this week talked to a client who is currently paying $1,800 a month for mm -hmm. their brochure site hosting. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to go two grand. Two grand? Matthew, you got any? You're, I know you're the king of like auditing all of these, you know, inexpensive VPSs to figure out which is the right. best. What, what do you think that people? That's right. It's going to be more than fifty dollars. I know that already, but okay. I'll guess ten uh, k. Uh, all right, so you're up there with Harry. Well, it was yeah. it was, ended up being about thirty five thousand dollars a month. <laughs> like not even kidding not even kidding i could get them a great deal like i could get them down to 30 easily i transitioned them to a vulture vps and they're paying 40 dollars a month <laughs> and it's serving all of their traffic and everything is wonderful and, and they so have new five full-time employees that they can now pay like <laughs> isn't, isn't that great i mean it's just like did they get their money back from the people who initially did this I mean, that's well just, okay so i, I that's know, an important question it's insane, right? But here's the thing. This is a company that they didn't really have a tech team or whatever. So someone who didn't really know a whole lot was sold by someone who said, hey, use Rackspace, this thing. And they didn't really know what they're getting. You know what I mean? Like they didn't, they probably had no idea what they needed or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. And the, ir the ironic thing is, you know, I was called in as a consultant and here I saved the company a ridiculous amount of money by converting this thing over to this $40 a, a month thing. You know, I saved them like, you know, over a quarter of a million dollars a year. And mm -hmm. the, the leadership had no idea who I was. <laughs> <laughs> <Just like. laughs> and they actually questioned like some of the billing expenses when they were submitted. Like, you know, I, I saved them over a quarter of a million dollars and they were complaining about a couple of thousand dollars in billing. <laughs> like, Somewhere in that story, there's a, in the movie version of that story, there's a scene with no audio where yeah. somebody makes a face when they've realized <laughs> how yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. that's the part I want to cut to now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So also that's like the, the, the whole value-based pricing thing like that. That's, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I don't have to word it without sort of patronizing, but I, I'm self-employed, right? And I do consultancy work. Sure. Um, so I'm very aware of my work has to equate to some kind of either financial improvement or some kind of savings. Right. 
But that's just me being a developer, right? And every developer wields that power. And I think a lot of people I work with who are like full-time employees just don't realize that their own te- their own technical decisions could have that amount of impact in a mm. business. And then that gives them leverage for promotions, pay rises, whatever. And it's really, really impressive. Like just the amount of things that individuals can just spot and just by knowing the right thing to do, it's, it's huge. Not if they don't so, know who you are, funny. though. <laughs> Go, go ahead, Matt. Well, that's, that's, that's the only problem. I had a fascinating, fascinating thing. 2018, I think, I was working for... I'm not going to name the company. I can't really say much about them other than they're based in Tallinn, Estonia, and right. they deal in, in Bitcoin, right? So it sounds dodgy as hell, but they're right. an amazing company, really <laughs> great. And a lot of their customers were coming from Southeast Asia, so basically they wanted me to focus on sort of mobile in Southeast Asia. So I dug into their analytics. And one thing I found really interesting was, yeah, sure enough, like Singapore, South Korea, Vietnam, et cetera, was pretty slow, but there was a massive, just big dark cloud hanging over Venezuela. I was like, Hmm. what's going on here? There's something wrong with, like Venezuela is weirdly slow, but Colombia isn't, right? Brazil isn't, Argentina isn't. Why Venezuela? Why is it so much worse than everywhere else? So I did some digging and I learned three really interesting things, right? Well, the first one I already knew, Venezuela's economy is tanked. So they want to get their hands on any not Venezuelan currency. Right. Now, by default, that's going to be US dollars, but Bitcoin counts. So that's the first thing is they try to get their hands on any not Venezuelan currency. Part of that would be Bitcoin. Second thing is, in a bid to try and recover the economy, Venezuelan government actually released their own cryptocurrency, right? Terrible idea. Yeah, right, right. I remember that. Mm-hmm. So now all, all of a sudden you've got an entire country that is at least predisposed to the idea of cryptocurrency. The third and most fascinating part of the puzzle was electricity is free in Venezuela, mm. right? <laughs> all subsidized by the government. No wonder there are economies tanks. So if someone leaves their machine on overnight, wake up, they're made three cents. So they're literally printing money. So there's a small, like the small part of this country is just wise to it. And like, well, we can just print money, make Bitcoin, and go and spend it with this Estonian website, right? Go spend it there, this free mm. money. So even though my client had said, look, can you focus on Southeast Asia? I was like, look, I'll take a look at that. But I had a meeting with the CEO and I said to him, look, do you know about your Venezuela problem? And I on purpose worded it a bit aloof. And he was like, I don't know what that means. So I sat him down and I explained the whole extent of the Venezuela thing. So the whole project kind of changed a bit to focus on Latin America, specifically Venezuela. So I set up some, I got some data about how the web feels in Venezuela, went around all the engineers' machines in the office in Tallinn and made their machines run like they had a Venezuelan connection. And I basically annoyed them into improving the site. Mm. This company ended up making so much money from Venezuela that um, they had to hire a full-time member of staff just to count all the pennies. It was ridiculous. <laughs> and that's just because you know, one nerd from England looked in the right panel in Google Analytics, right? It's Yeah, that's it's incredible. Not, it's not, yeah, they, that client loves me. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's nice when you're doing your job, whatever your job is, it's nice to feel you're making an impact, right? It's nice to feel that right, you're exactly. you're doing something good and you're making a difference. And I like the way that you're pulling some of this performance stuff into real world examples, because I've done similar things where you mentioned earlier that you would try putting the website and artificially slowing it for a while, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of the clients <clears throat> that we end up working with, they're sitting at a computer on a high speed internet connection in a, you know, first world or whatever term you want to use country, you know, with modern infrastructure. So they're essentially viewing their website in the absolute best case scenario that anyone will ever see it, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's really important that you make people understand that this is the absolute best case. So I've even done it where I've gone in and for a day I've artificially limited, you know, in league with their IT department, artificially limited their internet connection speed to what it would be if they were surfing it on, you know, 3G or 4G, right? Mm -hmm. Amazing how many allies you can get on board when you show them, hey, you know, you're not experiencing reality. Here's reality, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting aspect I see real similar to this is everyone believes that everything's an edge case. But when you add all the edge cases together, it's like, oh, right, yeah, it's very it's very rare to have that normal plane sailing experience. So in internal talks, one of the exercises I've done a few times with, like, uh, with companies is I'll just say something like, right, just stand up and remain standing if you've ever had a 4G icon on your phone, but your data isn't actually working. And mm. loads of people stand up. I'll, I'll, right, mm-hmm. you stay standing. Anyone else, if you've ever used crappy hotel Wi-Fi, please stand up and stay standing. Mm. And that's just... Only, it only takes three or four questions until 95% of the room standing up. And yep. I'll say, right, look around. You're all, you're all what you would consider to be an edge case, right? Everyone in this room right. is an edge case, right? It's not as rare as you think. And that, that often gets people thinking, oh, yeah, you know, he's right. Like, I've, this, this stuff that happens to me happens to my pal down the street. It happens to my neighbor. It happens to everyone. 
And that's a good way of getting people, or it can be a good way of getting people on board. It's a bit wishy-washy, but it's effective. You strike me as at least 19. In the time that you've been <laughs> performance wizarding, um, how, how have people, like, a, appreciation or, or perceptions of performance changed? Or have, has it? It's getting, I, I don't want to say in vogue, because I'm hoping it's not just a passing trend, but it's certainly way more of a thing now. I think yeah. we had a bit of a spot. Because we had like, I don't know, I'm, I didn't really use the web in the 90s ever, but I was, I'm aware of like, you know, things were way slow back then. So we would actually have performance budgets before they were even a thing. And we had that kind of middle bit where the iPhone hadn't been invented yet, mobile browsing wasn't really a thing, and everyone just thought, oh, well, you know, everyone's basically got the exact same setup at home. And then as soon as mobile took off and the diversity sort of just ballooned, right? it became back in, in fashion. And then I think now with the next billion users and a big focus on emerging economies, uh, we're seeing that, yeah, the, the Western web is not exactly how the rest of the world is going to experience it. But yeah. it's definitely people getting way, way, way more interested in it, which is great for me because I'm selling it. Have you also seen, because I mean, for example, I like to read the news on my phone. I have a pretty old phone and I find it to be incredibly frustrating with the proliferation of advertising that's on I mean, news sites, especially, but other websites. And you mentioned you've been working a lot with e-commerce companies, but I was also wondering if you could talk about news sites and things like that, that are making the, at least the mobile experience horrible. Like I can only read on my computer with ad blocker. Otherwise I just get <clears throat> angry and, you know, start throwing things. Yeah. News sites are notorious. So they're, they're the worst. They're like infested with STDs. I mean, they're, they're just horrible. That's you know? so bad. Yeah. I've actually been working with a, a publisher in North America, a news site I've got a bunch of their tabs open right now, but I, I won't I won't name and shame them. Basically, the problem goes way further back, right? The web was basically built on fanciful ideals. So you've got all these newspapers who've gone from selling a physical newspaper every morning to be like, oh, just stick it on the internet for free. Right. And panicking, that, oh, shit, we're not making any money. Right. And yeah. Defensively, the only thing they could think to do is, like the paywall thing is way too late because people are used to it being free. Yep. So it's just ads. It's infested. And so the problem obviously goes way, way further back than, than just ads. It's just the whole business model is wrong. Yep. So one thing I've done with this, this publisher in the US, or this North American publisher, is we just looked at, okay, how far can you push it? Like there's a sweet spot. The more ads you put on a page, the more money you're going to make. But at a certain point, there's going to be too many ads and people will get annoyed enough that they're going to disappear. What's that sweet spot? What is the most we can get away with? And working that out, has been, that's been fascinating. Again, just lots of multivariate tests kind of things. And working out that, okay, this is the sweet spot of abandonment versus revenue. You're not going to keep everyone happy, but it's like kind of your most your sweet spot for revenue. It's actually going to mean removing some ads to get the engagement up so you get more eyeballs on pages. And it's just, you've got to follow the numbers, really. But ideally, I just I just wish we could, you know, time machine and go back and fix the actual business model itself because I hate consuming news on the web. It's, yeah. I still buy newspapers, right? Uh, well, maybe once a month, but consuming news on the web is awful i i agree with you man and I, I agree that the problem is business model oriented because once you there's ads which is one thing but then there's also all of the infrastructure that you bring along with you once you decide to put an ad on a page which is that right. the company that is placing the you know the syndicate that is handling that ad as well as the person placing that ad wants to know how well is that ad performing that's where all right, yeah. of this tracking stuff comes in and you know different ad networks will use different stuff and you end up with this like the the company Let's say it's a newspaper. It's an online newspaper. They're not going to turn down an ad just because it's coming from a different network. You know, they need the money. They're, a lot of these yeah. companies are, are really, you know, their heyday is gone and they're really hurting for cash. So they'll take ads from anywhere. So you'll have multiple ad networks with multiple methods of tracking and you just end up with this junk everywhere, you know. And, you know, there are a number of tools that you can use to audit sites like this. But there's a, a really nice tool that I use, like web page test, for instance, can do it, right? You'll see all of this stuff that is spiraling down there. But there's mm -hmm. also a request map site, which I think it oh, uses. Yeah, I think it uses web page test under the hood, but it visually mm -hmm. shows like where everything kind of spreads and what fires what. And it's just amazing when you run that on like a CNN.com or something like it is it's so incredible it's, it's incredible it's incredible it's yeah. horrifying i've been dealing with so my uh, i'm really good friends with simon who built that um and he's been putting in some feature requests for me because um one thing i want to see that tool do is isolate just 
Because so you've got your third parties and you've got the third parties, third parties, and their third, well, fourth, fifth, sixth parties. Mm-hmm. We got no control over those, right? So I don't really want, I don't really care about fourth, fifth, sixth parties. I want to isolate that first ring of who are we actually linking out to. Right. That's as if we can control. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there should be some nice stuff coming up in, in request not soon. Yeah, but that's a great tool. And just the nice thing about that tool is it's visceral. You look at it, you show it to someone that maybe they don't even know what it means, but they can be like, whoa. You know, like, they can see if there's a lot of data on it, right? You yeah. could tell them it's anything. Right. You're like, oh, this, this, that doesn't look healthy. Yeah, like you can say, really nice thing. Yeah, you can say, imagine this is crawling on your skin. How would you feel about it? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One, uh, oh, yes, yeah, so I, I had like another little, a nice story about marketing and tracking and stuff. Okay. They exist. Little, okay. I'm impressed. Let's, let's yeah, hear well, this was This was really, I don't want to say heartwarming, but like this is a nice little tale of working with a client who, um, I was actually brought in to do design systems work, but I was like, yeah, also your site is terribly slow. So can we take a little look at that? Sure. And they were like, oh yeah, it's not really us. It's it's more like the marketing team and uh, the marketing, like this company is based in the UK and it was a, the UK arm of a US firm. And they're like, oh, but the head of marketing, she's in the US and she's a bit like, you know, they're all, they're all a bit scared of her. And I was like, well, do you know what? It's my job to have these awkward discussions. Let's take a look. Sure. So I looked through the site and I was like, oh geez, yeah, this third party stuff's got way out of hand. So using request map, I exported the raw data, pulled into a spreadsheet, which then just highlighted any duplicates. So using two ad providers, right? We've got three analytics accounts, whatever. Mm. It would highlight any duplicate categories. And it would also just on a scale of from white to really dark red on a gradient scale, it would color in each cell for like how bad it is. So anything that had just one request would be basically white, but anything, any domain that had 200 requests would be really deep, like blood red. And you could just visualize at a glance, like the, right. the shape of things. Yeah. And they were like, oh yeah, like we've, it's good to have the data, but marketing, they're just, oh, we're scared of them. I just got on a call with uh, the marketing team and the woman was like, oh my goodness, this is gold. We've been, we were aware of the problem. We knew it's like marketing debt, I guess, rather than tech debt. She was like, we just had no idea where to start. And it's yeah. been on this one of these things, we're trying to avoid the discussion because we have no idea what to do. And I was like, well, look, automated it, done it for you. Let's work through it. And they were, the team in the UK was like, just sigh of relief. They thought they were going to get shot at for this. Right. It turns out the marketing team were just so grateful because it was, they knew they had a problem and it wasn't like they were precious about it. They were really grateful for the work that we'd done. And, and that's, that's a really heartwarming thing. Just, just talk to people. Yeah, that's impressive because it's impressive that they knew there was a problem because I, I've seen it also where I worked with one company that they had Adobe Tag Manager, I think is what they were using. And a lot of people had come and went from the the position of you know the person who handled this stuff no, right. Nobody knew what everything did. You know, there was just there was just, just stuff in there, right? And that is such a common thing, isn't it? Yeah. And then in, instead of and then they wanted to transition to use Google Tag Manager, and they but they couldn't figure out like what was needed and what wasn't. So we kind of came up with a system where before any tag could be created, someone had to own it. Right. A person's mm-hmm. name like X person <clears throat> owns this tag and here's the reason why it exists. And so anytime anything was added, it was documented. Right. So they at least had some way they could come back and be like, you know, we don't need this anymore. We can audit this out or we can get rid of that because they for a while they were running both Google Tag Manager and Adobe Tag Manager on the same site. And there was just stuff everywhere. You know, that's that's a really nice approach, much more responsible than, uh, than my approach, which is normally just turn it off for a week. And if no one emails you complaining, then it can probably go. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that gets back to what we we're talking about before. You know, this guy that you were talking, whatever, guy, girl, whoever it was that had that snippet of code that was absolutely critical, right? That you mentioned that never yeah. worked. You know what I mean? Absolutely never vital. Never, never worked. So then, and also our discussion about, well, is anyone actually doing anything with this data, right? You know, like if you're if you're putting all these tags out there and you're having this impact on what you're trying to do, you're trying to convert customers, you're tracking them, you're doing remarketing, you're doing whatever you can to get those sales, at least have a plan to make sure that you're utilizing this data and it's not just wasted. I, I think a huge problem a lot of businesses have is they don't have business analysts. They don't have people who have the in and out of this live session tracking tool costs this much. Right. And we perceive that's going to save us or make us this much a year. So if you can put numbers against it, I don't. no one really wants a fast website. They want the most profitable site. So I don't care if you're, if you can prove to me that your real-time session tracking tool is going to make you more money than the slowdown it will cost you, if that makes sense, 
and keep it. Right. Like if you know, making this like 500 milliseconds slower by having this tracking tool is going to make you more money than having a 500 milliseconds faster website, then yeah, I'll, I'll pipe down. I'll keep my mouth shut. Like it's not, yeah. no one really wants the fastest website, but yeah. no one can ever prove that to me. So it's, it just means that it puts me in a fairly good position. Cause it's like, well, look, if there's no business case for this, then that's performance aside, right? There's, that's a good enough reason to bin it because you've not costed it. You've not worked out what it's bringing you back. So that like helps me out a lot with my making my case, but a lot of people just aren't aware of it. Well, and I love the fact that the, in this example that you gave earlier, that the marketing team was like, oh, thank you. Like we needed somewhere to start because, you know, this shouldn't be that we're just kind of blaming marketers for creating these tags because marketers are, they're supposed to be good at marketing, right? They're not supposed to be good at managing website performance and knowing the, the technical implications of what they're doing. I've run into similar things where people are grateful that I am letting them know that there is a cost associated with, with what they're doing because they're like, oh, well, we don't want that because that's going to slow down our site, which is then potentially going to hurt conversions way more than we would benefit from, you know, tracking these people down to the, you know, the type of beer they like to drink when they're sneaking into a pub underage, you know? I mean, how much is that (laughs) Um, data worth to you, you know? Well, this is, this is, I'm going to name this company because they were absolute angels. One of the nicest companies I've ever worked with. Late last year, I worked with Vitamix out in Cleveland, Ohio, working on their e-com site. And they were one of the most receptive, infused, engaged companies like in general, not just the engineering team, but everyone who got involved, got involved fully. And one, one thing I'll, I always insist is that at the end of the project, the dev team, the engineering team does a demo to the entire company hmm. just to show that you know, we haven't just been sat in a room doing nothing for a week. Here's what it does. Here's what we did. And here's how it impacts the business. And I invite everyone. It's like, I want marketing there. I want finance. I want customer support. I want everybody in this room. And we do the demo and it's good and it's good fun and see what the fruits of our labor have been. But the Vitamix marketing team were there and we were saying things like, yeah, you know, we, we actually are already pretty responsible, but we do need to be aware of Every time we add a Pinterest retargeting thing, that's going to have a cost. And the marketing team were just like, holy shit, this is fascinating. We, had, we, didn't really know the, we didn't really know any of this. So afterwards, they came separately sort of like to ask questions like, what can we do to help? How can we, should we run things by you before we add them? Should we do this? And it's just one of the most amazing, just watching how enthused they were and how like enlightened an engineering team were like over the moon about it as well. And it's one of those things where one of the weirdest parts of my job is non-technical. It's just making sure people chat to each other. So we end up getting some custom monitoring up in speed curve. So it'd be things like, does adding a new sharing widget impact the amount of signups we get? Yes or no? Because you can capture everything with speed curve. Did adding the Pinterest button slow down our start render at all? And did that have a knock-on effect on conversions or session length or whatever. And yeah, that was one of the most, that was a really nice, that was a good project. So Harry, are you worried at all about speed curve just kind of putting you out of a job? I mean, can, can I just go in, set up speed curve and away we go? Um, no, really. Uh, like it'll tell you what's slow, but it won't tell you how to make it fast. You mm. still need someone to actually implement it or guide you. I've got a really, really great working relationship with the speed curve team. So it's fairly symbiotic. I use Speed Curve for my own stuff. So I, I started to learn it. Well, I just know it very, very well and right. got almost like a, a good line into support with them. So what normally what happens is the problem gets inverted. I'll work with clients and I'll be like, look, you need to get Speed Curve on the site and I'll show you how to set it up. So it, it, weirdly, the opposite is kind of true. It, it's a good, often a good line into businesses for me. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because there are lots of tools like that. You know, like for instance, I've got I've got this crazy DAC that I use for mixing the podcast together, and mm-hmm. I open up the UI for it, and I have no idea what I'm doing. Like it's just got <laughs> knobs and levers a- anywhere, right? So just giving this to me doesn't make me an audio engineer. You know what I mean? Just in the same way, right, probably exactly. like you know, just giving someone speed curve doesn't necessarily you know make them really good at diagnosing and and then implementing, as you said, the uh, the performance stuff. Yeah, and the, and the other thing as well is. Um, a lot of companies don't want to to be that involved with it, right? They like the idea that so a company I'm working with at the moment, they're like, hey, can you just set speed cover for us? Can you just show us what to do? But yeah, I mean that's billable work. I'll happily do it. And what they're gonna end up is like a wealth of, of data and a wealth of metrics that yeah, their engineers are gonna fix, but I'll help I'll sort of guide that. So a lot of people, yeah, they'll have the tools, but they will usually want someone else to to actually become the domain expert in it, which is which again is great for me because I, I adore using Speed Curve and I get to learn it inside out because you'll have specific examples or specific scenarios that you've got to solve. One thing that I do worry about in terms of not job security, but you know, becoming obsolete is uh, a lot of web performance is just workarounds, you know, trying to work with an antiquated stack, right? Yeah. You know, H1, et cetera, is being obsoleted by H2, which is going to be obsolete by quick. 
mm-hmm. or H3. So that's the kind of stuff where I think, oh, goodness, like once we've fixed it at the actual root, kind of the core of the problem, that's when performance engineers are going to start being, or should be a little more scared. You know, the fun thing about Quick is that, so the, the protocol that we use for the web right now with HTTP is TCP, right? So that's like the network level protocol that's being used. And mm-hmm. back in the day when... I was um, working on internet games back before anyone had, you know, low latency broadband. One of the things we were trying to implement was a reasonable system that would work. And you just can't do it with TCP, right? Because yeah, it's, it's slow by default. It's, it's too slow because it, it has this whole layer of, you know, a- acknowledging stuff and verifying and all that kind of stuff. So you end up using UDP, which is a lower, a lower level protocol. The fun thing about UDP is you send this packet out, but then there's no guarantee that it gets there. There's no reply back. There's nothing that says this made it through. Like it's just, it's just sending a raw packet out there and who knows how many of them are going to make it. Um, mm-hmm. And Quick is a layer based on UDP that adds a little bit of the insurance that you would need for, uh, or that TCP has for things that, you you know, you have to get the actual data back, but apparently without some of the uh, overhead of TCP. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. It was just kind of, it was interesting when I was reading up on Quick and what it actually was. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I remember doing stuff with that, like, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> it's all Disney again. Yeah, yeah just taking yeah. the speed benefits of UDP and putting a thin film of TCP-like behavior over the top of it. And there's things like, um, so like uh, TLS 1.3 gets you down to a theoretical zero round trip to establish a secure connection. You've gone yeah. from three round trips down to potentially zero on like a, a warmed up connection. Yeah. Or like a cached. It's just stuff like that. You just think, oh, goodness. Right. I'm going to have to really find some stuff. Other than saying that, I've still got clients who turn up with six meg PNG images on their homepage. So it's like, there's still some low-hanging fruit. But you're right, though. I mean, a lot of it is optimizing for old stacks and old ideas and old ways of doing things, right? You know, so one of the the biggest gains on any site is usually fixing the images so that the images are optimized and we're not serving like this massive image down to a tiny little mobile device, you know? Yeah. And all of this stuff is important to conversions and 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 page load and, and all that, that kind of stuff. But there are some other things, right? So there's also energy conservation, right? I mean, apparently they did a study and in, in the US alone in 2017, we used 90 billion kilowatt hours of electricity for data centers just for data centers right and you know things are getting more you know we're not building less of them right we're building more and more of this stuff and absolutely and and that gets back to you know news of the day stuff burning down in australia and you know protecting the environment and all that kind of stuff and these all kind of tie together and it reminds me of you know one of the things my wife does is when we go to restaurants she will not allow them to bring straws. So she has metal straws that she just brings with us and we just wash them. And you might be like, oh, you know, big deal. Like, you know, it's not really going to make a big difference anyway or whatever. But I don't think you should ever kind of crap on someone for making a small difference, even if you think it doesn't matter. And as web developers, this is one area that we can make a difference. You know, it is our choice when we sit down to build these things. It is our choice whether we make them performant or not, or whether we're super wasteful with our with our resources or not. You know, so this is really quite fascinating to me. I've got um, a really good friend called uh, Asim Hussein, who he works at Microsoft, but he's doing a lot of speaking at the moment about sort of the environmental impact of, of tech and web development. And I think the problem is it's it's hard to quantify. And as web developers in general, we're abstracted away from so many things. Like people literally forget that all the mobile phones in the world that view like our websites are left charging up overnight every night, right? That yeah. power everything. Right. The MacBook you're using needs, mine's plugged in right now, taking energy out of the wall, right? It's But we just forget the most basic, simple, fundamental things that if you've got us, like, you know, the fans start spinning, you see your laptop battery dying because Chrome's up to two gig of memory usage again, like you're going to have to plug your laptop in an hour sooner than you expected. That energy's coming from somewhere. Yeah. So it's stuff like that. It's, just, it's fascinating. It's really obvious when someone puts it in front of you because the data is so obscured and abstracted away from us. Developers just don't think about it. So here, I didn't really think about it. So here's a here's a really minor example, and it's contrived, but it's I think it's kind of realistic. So let's say that we we do image optimization on the images that are on our site, and we manage to mm-hmm. shave just 10k of data off of a single image, which is a very modest gain in my experience. Like normally, you can gain quite a bit more than that. But let's say we shave 10K off an unoptimized image. Okay, you might be like, well, that's wonderful. Like, why did you waste your time on doing that? That's nothing. You know, 10K is is nothing. But then let's say there are five images on the the page. Okay, now you've saved 50K. 
eh, you know, I mean, you're kind of getting up into something. But then then let's say that that page receives a thousand visitors a day, right? Mm-hmm. Now you're saving 50 megabytes a day of data, right? Yeah. And then it, over the... Scale. Yeah, and then over the course of a year, you're saving 16 gigabytes, right? And this is just network traffic, right? I mean, but it's also potentially in billable cell phone data plans. And then as you mentioned, you know, let's say we are serving like a super huge unoptimized image to a uh, a cell phone somewhere. Well, then all of that energy has to be used to transmit this massive thing throughout the cell towers. The phone gets it. And it's going to use more energy just to just to receive it. But then also the GPU in there is going to have to do extra work to scale it down to display there, which is going to drain the battery more, which, as you mentioned, then they got to Then, you know, potentially millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people then have to plug those phones in and they got to charge them more all because of this one you know, little thing. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I am. Um, it's it's it's. I mean, it's right there. It's obvious when you step through it in those clear and plain steps. It's really obvious that there is energy usage all the way along. Yeah. It wasn't until this year that someone really confronted me about it. He just basically asked at a conference, what's your opinion on the environmental impact of your work? And I was like, oh, don't have one. I've not really thought about it. He didn't. Unfortunately, he didn't just drop it. He was like, yeah, but you know, you must think about it. And I was like, is that an instruction? Are you telling me to think about it now? <laughs> but I did. I did that pondering. I was like, yeah, it's an interesting concept. But the sad fact is my clients... And well, it's the it's the the global problem, right? Is everyone's got problems they feel are much closer to home. So the CFO, they're not bothered about saving the planet, they're bothered about more zeros in a bank account. Sure. So it's I would I would struggle to sell my services based on the environmental environmental impact, purely because yeah, CFO of a company isn't really oh yeah, it'd be nice to, you know, use you know fewer CPU cycles, energy, blah blah blah. blah. But really what we want to do is just shift more of these kitchen knives. Right. right. So it's, it's a hard sell, but it's it's there. It's right there. Yeah. And it's interesting to, to think about that impact, you know, and, it, you know, if there if there do end up being, you know, more rolling blackouts in, in various countries or more countries on fire, then you know, I don't know, maybe it will end up more important. But at some point, my overly curmudgeonly view is going to be good again. I mean, like every restaurant site has me thinking, OK, yeah, React is pretty cool. But do we need style <laughs> sheets? Because I just need an address. And you're right. right yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Let's just uh, Louis C.K. has a bit about people complaining about their flight. He's just irate that people are able to sit in a chair and fly. <laughs> and they're complaining about, you know, some some trivial thing. I don't know. I yeah. just I feel like the Internet is so cool. But really, like, what do you want to say? Who are you saying it to? Like, what, I don't know. Absolutely. Maybe we get to focus on what the goal is. It's, but it yeah. sounds like the theme is a well-placed nerd that can connect the business goals with, with the uh, like technical constraints and, and implementation is hugely helpful. That's generally what, what helps out because it's certainly my role. I've got to realize, I've got to tell people what they want to hear, basically. I need to tell developers that it's a technical problem with a technical solution. I need to tell <laughs> CEOs that, oh, it's just a simple cultural thing. And if you spend this money on speed curve, everything will be fine. And <laughs> just try and make things around so they all line up. But um yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting dynamic. Well, I actually get I get immense satisfaction out of saving, you know, just a few percent. And people will be like, "Oh, big deal! You saved, you know, three percent or whatever." But again, multiplied over X number of images, multiplied by X number of people visiting it every day, you actually are making a big difference when you start to get up on the scale of things. You know? Yeah, I mean. A small percent of a big number is still a big number, right? So right. I've got a friend, a really good friend of mine, Tom Hudson, security engineer here in the UK. And he's very wise, wise beyond his years. And honestly, maybe eight years ago, he got into a bit of a, not an argument, but a, a developer argument. Oh, he one was, of those. Um, was it how to pronounce GIF? Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't as bad as that. Okay. But he, was, he, he optimized something and someone was saying, to him, oh, it's a waste of time, it's blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and it was someone from a separate organization. It was like an on Twitter thing, right? Which is even more kind of embarrassing. God, yeah. But this was at a company, Sky, here in the UK, where we were working at scale. And this other guy, this external guy was like, oh, yeah, but it's just a waste of time. You're saving 1%. What's it all for? So Tom did some back of the napkin math. He was like, well, if we save 1%, that could be decommissioning up to six servers, right? And this yeah. was years ago before the site was even that big. He's like, you know, that's not, not to be sniffed at. That's six racks we could got could have got rid of. And it's like, yeah, that thing of you shouldn't get blindsided by micro-optimizations, but, you know, small percent of a big number is still a big number. Right. And I think that's the problem is when you're a developer, you're thinking about just this page. But in order to really understand the impact that you're having, you have to think about how many people are loading this page every day. 
And, right. you, and you really oh, yeah. kind of have to do that multiplication to really comprehend the impact that you're you're going to be having. I think um, one thing that I try and encourage a lot of my clients, like the business side of my clients to do is give their uh, developers more access to company financials. Hmm. Obviously, it's a bit of a sensitive topic, but sure. you know, you'll get developers just not optimizing images, sticking them in an S3 bucket. And it's not until I go to the product owner and say, hey, can I get the login details for your, you know, your actual Amazon account, right? Where your credit card details are. Cause I want to see how much you're spending on bandwidth. Yeah. Cause for who some, knows? You, who knows? You might have a developer who saves you $35,000 a month on hosting, right? Right. Or, or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you might have developers in that building who they don't care about optimizing images and they're, they're losing you money. Right. It's a bit of a shady, it's a bit of a shady tactic. I've had to use it only once. Hmm. With clients, a lot of them are reluctant to spend money on things like Cloudinary or ImageX or Fastly's IO or whatever it is. A lot of them are reluctant because it's more spend, it's more paperwork, it's more whatever. Sure. So can you not just show the marketing team how to optimize images? Can you not just show the designers how to optimize images? I was like, yeah, I can do, but I can guarantee a week after I've left, I'll stop doing it. And sure enough, they stopped doing it and you can't really enforce it. <laughs> so I've only done this once. It was a company that just flat out refused to spend any money on Cloudinary, ImageX, whatever. So I just told their... Um, it wasn't the CEO. I can't remember who it was. Someone fairly high up. I was like, oh, by the way, your unoptimized images, your bandwidth was this much a month. We've optimized them. It's now 40% less. So basically, yeah, your staff not optimizing images is costing you money. Mm. And it became a rule. Like, if I find out you're not optimizing images, then you're losing us money. And that's not good. And it became not a disciplinary thing. That's way too drastic. But just by convincing someone higher up that you need to kind of rule with an iron fist. And it's not a very good cultural move, really, to scare people into doing it. But I was backed into it at the corner. But yeah, put a cost against everything. Developers often don't realize the cost or value of their work, which is because the business obscures it from them. Yeah. You're in the business where you do this kind of optimization. So you have people contacting you and you mentioned earlier, you you know, and <laughs> you don't really feel that you have to prove it anymore. But Patrick, you do a whole lot of websites. Is, is it becoming more of a thing that performance written into the budget actually is something that clients are, are willing to go for? Yeah, I, I, it's funny. Harry said something about uh, maybe Google page speed scores or light light have scores. I've actually, and I don't know if I've said on the podcast before, it's definitely something that comes up and it's a selling point for mine. One thing that we do have to do though is, as was said earlier, when it comes to tracking scripts and all that, when we try to put that into the budget and try to give it some teeth, we have to say something like, you'll have a 90 plus score on Google PageSpeed, desktop and mobile before tracking scripts. Yeah. Yeah. And it gives us a metric that we can hit and show that we gave them value and that we did our job. But it also then, you know, conversely can show them later on when it plummets down to a 50 or something, what it was. Um, Yeah. We've definitely seen it. Sometimes it comes up in the contract. Sometimes it's afterwards and, you know, the CEO discovers page speed or whatever it is and says, why is our score not where we want it to be? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's very interesting. Like, and I'm doing more and more these days with front end JavaScript frameworks. I think if you're doing bundling and async and promises and all that good stuff, you can do that and be good for performance. I, I am a little bit concerned about the the size of, of how many scripts are pulling in and what that means. Like even if the score is happy, like what is the real page weight and bloat that's coming along with it? Mm. So yeah, I, I, it's something that that we do and that we do make part of our contract. But um, yeah, I, I'm definitely a little bit concerned with how heavy the web is getting. Yeah. And, Ad, and Adi Asmani has a great article on the cost of JavaScript where, you know, it's not equivalent. You know, 100K of JavaScript is doesn't have the same impact as 100K of an image, right? Because it's got to be downloaded, parsed, right, yeah. executed, yeah. All, that, all that kind of fun stuff has to happen. Front-end frameworks is, I mean, or anything, really. It depends on how you're doing it, right? Because if you are moving some functionality to the front-end, well, that's less work that, in theory, the server has to be doing. So a lot of times, the same work is done, but it's just changing where it's done. And you just have to yeah. ensure that it's being done efficiently wherever it happens to be being done. Like You're crowdsourcing your CPU cycles, right? You just say, no, oh, you right. know what? We can save money on servers by get the users to do it for us. Right. Yeah. And well, okay. So Jamstack is really something that is kind of gathering steam these days. And I I love me some Jamstack. I think it's fantastic for a lot of things, but there are things that it's terrible for. So if you have a website that has tons of authors and they're constantly changing stuff, you're probably going to use more energy constantly rebuilding and redeploying the site. Right. So it, it depends on what you're building and you have to kind of pick the right tool for the job and make sure it is efficient in the right places for it to for it to work, you know? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of it's a lot of it just goes back to basic, basic, basics, like simple mm. progressive enhancement. You know, I right. got into a bit of a, a thing, I don't know, a few months ago maybe. The imager website is a 
full React application, the mm -hmm. main image on the image of website is the 117th request, <laughs> right? The primary <laughs> things that you turn up to see isn't even requested until 117 requests in. And you just got to start thinking like, who, at which point? Yeah. I think I made a really, a really kind of throwaway comment like, you know, product owner six weeks after the site goes live finds an index card stuck to a bottom of a bottle like, shit, the image, we've got the image. It's <laughs> but, like, <laughs> but again, we got the same thing we're talking about. We got the same thing we're talking about for newspapers, right? Because Imager, they make money from ads. Mm -hmm. And so their site is horrible. It's one of the few. And I love Imager because I love looking at memes and stupid pictures. Like I, I browse that stuff all the time and I freaking love it. It's like junk food for me. But I, if I browse that thing on the laptop, man, the fans kick on and it gets so hot that it burns my skin. Like it is bad. It is really bad. Yeah. 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 It's, just, you know, just have an image tag and then lazy loadly adds your comments, your upvotes, your whatever, your <laughs> related images, lazy load that around it, but just solve the right problem first. So I got a lot of, I got to a lot of, I got to a lot of, uh, I got a lot of heat for that hot take. So I am, I'm channeling Jen's ghost and she says that something that she wants to know about is if, if there were just three things that I should keep in mind to focus on, to make my websites perform. And I know it's going to depend on the site and what's on there or whatever, but are there three simple things that just blindly blanket, you would say, these are the three things where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. Like, what do you think they might be? Oh, this is such a good question. Right. Number one, use the platform. Mm. So don't be clever, right? Use HTML. HTML is fast, right? It's, it's, right there it's the first response make use of that so use the platform as much as possible don't don't do convoluted things to achieve what could have been done very simply i think a part of the imager problem and i think this is massive conjecture and let's use any placeholder than just blaming image the whole time if you're going to build a site that serves images billions of images a day there must be part of the engineering team that thinks well that sounds like a very very complex problem we must need a complex solution right surely a simple image tag in html is not clever enough to solve that problem. So actually, no, it is, right? So don't, don't, you know, don't, don't overthink stuff. So use the platform. I would say that's the first thing I would say. Number two is uh, images or did I, um, or no? No, 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 no. So I didn't get to that. So I was using okay. images as the example of got it, know, got it, got building it. complex solutions to simpler problems. Um, second one after use the platform would be use as little as possible for as long as possible. Hmm. This is generally in regards to things like third party, either libraries, you know, like, your old npm install or it could be third-party providers such as analytics right how long can we get away without a tag manager how long can we just like survive without it and then only once you get to breaking point do you sort of say okay now we get a tag manager mm. so second one yeah as little as possible for as long as possible and the third one god i don't know uh general advice for always having a fast website would be don't trust anyone right if you are going to use third parties really do vet them because they you can do all the good in the world the moment you get a badly written third party or external library whatever uh, just do your due diligence i guess and don't always assume that third party providers know what they're doing because a lot of the time they don't yeah <laughs> that's that's fantastic advice and i that's in thinking about you know, what you're mentioning. Number one, use the platform. If it's there, utilize it because it's already built in. Don't, you know, layer crap on top of crap just to just to do what you want to do. Number two, use as little as possible for as long as possible, right? If you don't really need that tag manager or whatever, don't use it yet. And then number three, don't trust anyone. Vet your third-party tools and scripts. I think that's great advice. That's great advice. You know, I, I probably would have said something like, I would have said something like, well, you know, optimize your images because those are the most important thing. But I think your advice is way better because it's more higher level thinking and you can apply it to anything, not just images, you know? Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, I think all those three, I'm actually writing those down because there's a blog post in this. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I think those three things are transferable across traditional read-only websites or highly interactive apps. They're transferable across text-heavy versus image-heavy content. Yeah. Um, so that's the third thing I would philosophically look out for. A lot of my uh, a lot of my ethos comes from uh, Jeremy Keith, right? Mm. He's very, very wise. He's been around since the since the good old days. And sure. a lot of my thinking just is, is echoed by him or mine echoes his, I guess. Just keep it simple. Like, uh, right. use the platform, know what the sort of appropriate things to do are. And, yeah. Or as we say in New, in New York, kiss, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Keep Stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Harry, this has been fantastic. And uh, Jennifer and, and myself and everyone here, we want to have you on again. Uh, 
because that's been really good. I think we could go on for forever about this and, and any number of things, but I think that about wraps it up for another episode of the devmo.fm podcast. If you'd like to have every episode delivered to your favorite player, you can subscribe via RSS or find us on iTunes or Google Play. And if you like what we're doing, please review the show on iTunes. It's the best way to help others find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at devmo.fm and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Leave us a comment on the devmo.fm website where we can continue the conversation. For for the devmo.fm podcast, I'm Andrew Welch. I'm Matt Stein. I'm Patrick Harrington. I'm Jennifer Blumberg. <laughs> and thank you, Harry Roberts, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. terrible that that Jen unfortunately dropped off from the episode and I feel bad for myself about the editing that I'm about to have to do too. So angry. <laughs> yeah, that's gonna be a tricky one. Poor Jen. That sucks. Yeah. But that's another reason why you gotta come on again, man. We, we...